Turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus today. I'm not going to continue my series. I want to share a message that I really feel God spoken in my heart this past Friday as I was coming home from Israel. I was thinking about what was happening in our church, how God is working. I believe God is working supernaturally. How many, how many believe that? And there's wonderful things happening, and people's lives are coming on track. People are finding hope in Christ. It's really been exciting. But in the midst of all of that, how many know when you're winning battles that suggest that there's an adversary? And we know when there's an adversary and when there's victories that are being won, you know, we know that the enemy of our soul is not going to give up. And so in light of that, I really felt impressed to move in this direction. Haddon Robinson who is a notable Christian leader, related the story. Now, I know that this is over 20 years ago, but it's, it's happened over and over and over again and probably will continue to happen, unfortunately. And he should, he was at that time the president of, Dal, uh, of Denver Theological Seminary, went on to teach at Gordon-Conwell. He said, I received a letter from a young man in the penitentiary in Texas. He's serving between 10 and 20 years for attempted rape. As a Christian, he asked if I would send him a book that was not available to him in that particular prison. And then, as Robinson writes, Haddon Robinson says, I gladly responded to his request, but his letter deeply disturbed me because the young man had been a student of mine in seminary. And when he had left the seminary, he was a very gifted individual and had great vision. He had literally pastored two different churches and both were very successful. And then the second church, which uh, he knew better, he demonstrated you know, the gifts of evangelism. Many of the people in that church have been led to Christ as a result of his personally sharing his faith. Careful student of scripture. And, uh, and people would testify when he spoke, they really sensed God's presence. And yet, you know, he had fallen into this terrible decision in his life and had brought great disgrace upon himself and on his, on his church family. His, his ministry was so effective that the men in his church actually raised $20,000 to help him with his legal defense. Now that's over 20 some odd years ago. So that's a significant amount of money. He said, when I read that letter and knew what had happened, I found myself wrestling with all kinds of questions and emotions. What happens in a person's life to actually move in that direction? What went through his mind? What caused him to turn his back and all that he had given himself towards? And I want to make this declaration today that sin is no respecter of persons. Sin will attack all of our lives. And lest we think that any of us is beyond the scope of experiencing failure in our lives, the scripture says, take heed. When you think you stand, that's when you fall. You know, how many know that it's one thing when a person uh, sins, that's one thing, but when a leader sins, it's far more devastating. How many realize that? Because it's a person of trust, it's a person in a position of visibility, it's, you know, leaders are people of influence, and when leaders succumb to sin, it has a very negative impact on the life of that community of faith. How many can say that's probably really true? And I've, I've seen it over the years, I've, I've, I've witnessed it. You know, that's why I have such a regard for people like Billy Graham, who's been a person of amazing integrity, who has served for, you know, decades after decades, was very careful in his life, sought to brought honor to God. And, you know, it, it shows you that there are people who could actually, you know, serve with great integrity for long periods of time. It brings hope for all of us. But when people fall into sin, it brings great discouragement. So, 
You know, today I want to just say that one of the reasons why I'm bringing this up to our attention is that when one person suffers, we all suffer. Isn't that true? We're all affected. We're interconnected. Paul is using this illustration from the body. He's describing our relationship to him as a human body. And as every member of the parts of our body are all interconnected, God is revealing to us that we're all interconnected. We affect each other's lives. And when one person is negatively impacted, we're all impacted in a negative way. So we may ask ourselves, why is it that people sin? Well, that's, you know... That's part of the human equation today. We're dealing with a sin nature. And even though Christ can come into our lives, if we're not careful, we can allow the old nature to actually usurp or overthrow Christ's nature within us. And we can just become very self-centered and allow terrible things to begin to happen in our lives. I think we also need to realize that we have an adversary. We're fighting a spiritual battle. And Jesus said something on the night in which he was betrayed. He said this. He said, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Satan, one of his strategies to destroy the church, I think he has two main ones. One of them is simply causing dissension among members. You know, where we're, you know, not, you know, we're not in unity, we're, you know, we're, we're upset with each other, we're blaming, we're not building each other up or tearing each other down. You have this dissension. That's one strategy he uses. But another strategy is, you know, I'll just, just go after the leaders. I'll go after the leaders in the church. You know, during the Civil War, one of the strategies of, of the armies was to actually try to kill the other opponent's leaders. Because if you can kill the leaders, it has a negative impact on the morale of the people, number one. They don't know quite what to do. They don't know how to handle the situation because now there's a loss of leadership. Jesus said, if, you know, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. He said, if you strike the shepherd, what happens? The sheep scatter. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle this thing. There's a leadership void. And so one of Satan's main strategies in the Christian life is to go after leaders. It does make sense, doesn't it? How many think, well, that's kind of an interesting strategy, but it does make sense. And, you know, think about what happened in that story here that I'm reading about. Uh, Peter responds to Jesus when he says this. Now, Jesus was actually calling people to him that were becoming leaders, right? Isn't, wasn't Peter a leader? Of course he was. He became a great leader in the church. But look what Peter's response was. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I wish Peter hadn't said that. I, I think Peter would have wished he hadn't said that because we all know the story. Just in a few more verses, we find out Jesus says, listen, Peter, I hate to tell you the bad news, but I've been praying for you. You know, you're gonna mess up. I've, I've been praying that once you get straightened back out, you're gonna help the rest of them because you are a leader, but I know you're gonna fail. But I'm praying that God is gonna help you, you know, my Father's gonna help you. Why am I saying all that? Because Peter, a little more humble, later on writes in his letter, he said, you know, God uh, lifts up the humble. What does he do? But, he, but the proud, he, he resists. The proud are the ones that are falling down. Peter is quoting from Proverbs. He says, you know, pride cometh before a, a fall. Peter thought, hey, I can do this. And you know, in our lives, we all think we can do it. The problem is we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. 
As a matter of fact, I think what happens in our lives is testings come our way, and then we get a more of an idea of some of the stuff we don't realize is in our lives by how we respond to that test. And in Peter's case, it was failure. He responded in failure. He really bombed out. I mean, a little servant girl said, I think you're part of the disciples group. And he goes, I never knew this guy. I mean, he was fearful. You know, he, he lost his courage. It was a, a low point in Peter's life. And you know, there's, you know we can, I can sit down and, and I've worked with people over the years and you know, people come to me and they share their stories and sometimes there's tears in their eyes and they said, Pastor, it was a low point in my life. You know, I, I never thought I would ever do this. I never thought I would ever come to this point in my life. And then they begin to unfold the story. And why am I saying this to us? Because when I read the Bible, every human being, no matter how good they are, they're not the protagonist in the Bible. In other words, there's no person who's perfect in the Bible. There's the real hero of the Bible isn't the people in it. The real hero of the Bible is God himself. You see, we need to understand that. And so we can learn from these individuals. And yes, many of them do the right thing. And many times we can look at the examples of great virtue and, and doing the right thing, but we can also see when they mess up. We can also see the areas in their life where they're weak. I'm bringing this to our attention because there's not one person in this room, including myself, who's beyond failure, who's beyond sinning. And so I'm raising all of this so that we recognize the necessity of being very vigilant. Isn't it interesting, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to the disciples, watch and pray. And what happened to them? They fell asleep. And Jesus said what? He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, you guys want to do the right thing, but you find yourself not doing the right thing. And because they were not prayerful, when the hour of testing came, they fell apart. They weren't up to the challenge. They weren't alert, they weren't awake, they weren't aware of what was about to happen. You know, it's really important in our world today with so much going on that we become very alert, that we become watchful and aware. It was very fascinating, we were in the city of uh, of Jerusalem here just recently I mean just days ago and we had a free day and we all got to do different things and so I said to some of them as long as you guys are with somebody I'm, I'm okay with it you know I just want you to be alone so some of them are a little more nervous and they came with me and not all of them but you know some of them were and we went up to the old city and we went up to the ramparts and it was so fascinating because that morning I was reading Psalm 48 where it says, come up to the city of Zion. Come up to the city of God. Come up and, and walk on her ramparts, which are her walls. And we paid to go up there and we were walking along the walls of the rampart. We were having a blast up there, taking pictures, you know. You could see over the city and on one side and the other, right? What, weren't we having fun, Dale? Wasn't that great? We're walking along there. And what does all of that say? That meant that there were people there years earlier who walked the same ramparts and who were the watchmen on the walls. And what were they doing? They were paying attention so that if an invader came, they would be aware of the attack against the city, right? And God wants us to be spiritually alert and spiritually aware of what is about to happen in our lives. You know, I've already suggested that one of the ways that Satan works is through church divisions. And some of you have probably experienced that in your life and how painful that is. And some of you have experienced marital breakdowns and how painful that experience is, right? Division hurts. 
It's deep. But Satan's other strategy, as I've already said, is, you know, strike the shepherd and the sheep fall apart. Uh, you know, if someone like King David, who was a man after the heart of God, could fall, doesn't that say something to us? We need to be awake. We need to be alert. So I want to focus our attention today uh, on prevention. I'm not suggesting anything's wrong. I'm just saying in light of what God's doing and we're moving forward, do you think Satan's just snoozing and not saying, oh, we're, just, we're not going to do anything about this? Or should we kind of anticipate there's going to be a pushback? Should we anticipate that if we're not vigilant, you know, that we might be attacked back? That if we're advancing the kingdom of God, there's going to be some measure of conflict. You know, so, it's so funny in my mind. You know, people say, Pastor, I want to experience a miracle. Do you? That would suggest you need one. You know, some people say, I want to live in victory. I said, really? I suggest that you're going to have to have battles. Come on now, think about this thing. You see, and all I'm suggesting is it's going to happen anyways. It doesn't matter if you want it or not. We're in a conflict. There's a spiritual battle going on. The moment you give your life to Christ, there's opposition to you now. But you know, you didn't feel it before. No, because you were captive. You had been taken captive by Satan to do his will. Not, not, not that you wanted to do it, but you were a captive. The Bible says you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were following the prince of this world. You were controlled by a power greater than yourself, and you thought you were in control. No, you weren't. Sin was in control of your life. But now that you've come to Christ and you've been set free by this wonderful truth, you need to know that there's a battle going on, and now it intensifies. How many know what I'm talking about? You sense this intensification, and you know the moment that you become a Christian leader, how many know you're, you've just ratcheted it up to a new level? You have a bullseye on you. You know, I remember meeting the guy from the far side. You know that cartoon? I met him, Larson, in Seattle. Very interesting guy. But I remember this one cartoon he drew that was three big deer, big bucks with big racks, and the guy in the middle had a birthmark, and it was a bullseye. And the other two deer were looking at him and going, bummer of a birthmark, you know? And I'm just going to tell you, the, you know, if you're a leader, you have a bullseye on you. You are a target. Hey, mom and dad, you're a leader. You have a bullseye on you. The enemy wants to take you down and shatter your life so that your influence is diminished. You need to know that. So I want to talk about prevention today. Because we always act like, well, it'll never happen. Well, it does happen. And it's unfortunate when it does, so we need to be prepared. You know, like as already, I've already said, if a man like David could fall, who had, was a man after the heart of God, we can be sure that no one is immune from this attack. So, if leaders are called upon to pray for the people they serve, which we are, and which I do, I do pray for you. Now, I don't pray for you, all of you, by name, believe me. I would be praying a long time. But what I do do is when you come to my mind, I pray for you, and I pray for our church collectively. I pray every day for us, our church. I pray that God would watch over you. I pray that God would protect you. I pray that God would create a heart in you for him. I pray for you. You need to know that. And on Tuesday, I get our staff praying for you. And we pray very specifically. Every time you write a prayer request, we start praying. And many of you, uh, I start asking you, how are you doing here? Or what's, how is that coming along? Because I've been praying for you. Those specific things in your life. That's important. But not only should I be praying for you, but the followers 
of the leader need to pray for the leaders. It says it in the scripture. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says. Pray for us. He's writing. Pray for us. Why? We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. Pray that we will do that. How many think you want to have a good leader? You got to pray for those kind of people. Do you know, we can only expect from our leaders what we're praying for. Do you pray for our prime minister? We're commanded to do that. We're we're commanded to pray for the leaders in our country, our province, our city. We need to pray for them. And right now, we're fortunate. We have Christians in these roles. We should be praying. Because you know what? You know, if God decides, you know, he says, well, you guys are slothful and you guys are, you know, doing the wrong thing, God can give us the leaders we really deserve. That's scary. Because sometimes they're not so good. Right? That can happen. So we need to be thankful for what God is doing. We need to pray for those that are leaders. Now, the Apostle Paul comes along. How many think he was a great Christian leader? He was one of the greatest Christian leaders. But look what he says to the Ephesians. He says, pray also for me. Wow. Paul writes, I pray for you continually. But then later on he goes, pray for me. Why? He says that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Do you know there's a temptation in the lives of pastors to just kind of, you know, bring it down a notch. You know, don't offend people. Don't, you know what I'm saying? That can happen. You don't think that happens? You don't think that there's a pressure to not be politically correct? But sometimes when you're politically correct, you're biblically incorrect. And if you're biblically correct, sometimes you're politically incorrect. And so I've come to the deep conclusion that you're always hearing every single day, you know, what the culture wants you to hear. But when you come on Sunday, I'm going to say things that you're probably not going to hear every day. I've made up my mind. I'm going to do that. You say, why, pastor? Why would you do that? Because I think that we're actually living for a greater meaning and purpose. We're living for the, the day when we're going to stand before God, and we're living for an eternity. And it really, what really matters to me is how you're going to fare in the presence of the true and the living God. And I don't want you to you know, mess up down here and I just let everything slide for you and you end up you know, being ashamed on that day. I want you to be able to walk up and there's a quiet confidence that you have walked with God and that you have lived for God and that you are blessed of God and God will say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want that for your life. I won't be satisfied with anything less than that. So it's not enough to have just earthly resources. We need to have heavenly resources. You know, North Americans, we have the most earthly resources on the planet. But you know, that's not going to impact our culture. Our culture is lost. It's not just earthly resources that are going to transform our cities and our, and our nation. We need to have God's power speaking into the lives of people because a lot of people today don't want to be told anything, right? They want to be told they're okay. They want to be told, leave me alone. They want to be left alone and to do their own thing. They, they want to just continue on a path of self-destruction. But you and I have a moral responsibility. We can't just let people perish. We have a responsibility to humanity because God in his grace has saved our lives. And so in this episode that I want to point out to you today, there are four reasons why we need to pray for our leaders and how that's going to impact us, okay? And the, and the, and the end result, I believe, is going to be amazing victories. And the first reason why leaders need prayer 
is that leaders experience a variety of attacks. And then chapter 17, verses 1 to 15, the first part, you know, we see there's pressures from within. The people themselves are having difficulty. How many know that when you try to accomplish something, there's always resistance? Anytime you try to bring change, and leaders are about bringing change. You know, I'll tell you something. There are people in the positions of leadership that are not leaders. They just have the office of a leader, but they're just trying to manage things. You know you have a leader when they are doing the right thing, regardless of popular opinion, and they're bringing about the kind of changes that are going to bring about health and wholeness to the everybody. And not everybody's happy with that because you know why people resist change? Because number one, somebody's benefiting from the way things are. So you're going to have all those people that you're going to, they're going to resist you. And you know, change is sometimes difficult. How many have discovered that? Try changing yourself. See what happens. That's hard work. Right? Have you figured that out yet? It's, it's difficult. I don't have to tell anybody else to change. I just got to just work on myself and I find it really challenging. Okay? So there's always people that are going to resist. So there's always pressure. There's pressure from within. Notice what happened here in chapter 1. It said, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Raphidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Now, we don't appreciate it, but when you're in Israel and you're in a desert, and that's what that country's like, and you're in the Sinai, there's not a lot of water, and you're traveling, and you're leading a whole bunch of people, and they run out of water. How many know you're not very popular? You know? And, and so they were upset with Moses. As a matter of fact, they were so upset, Moses said, well, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord. He says, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. How many know this was not just a minor little, you know, Moses is a wimp and he can't handle criticism. How many sense Moses' life was in jeopardy because he's people were so angry and they kind of outnumbered him you know one Moses 200 I mean two and a half to three million people and they all knew how to throw rocks and I mean if you've been to Israel there's a lot of rocks Moses was in trouble so he started talking to God he says hey I'm in trouble here these guys are not happy with me so he had pressure from the people you know leaders all always have pressures as a matter of fact Uh, John Maxwell says this, Satan watches for the right time to attack Christian leaders. Usually, he attacks after victory or when the leader's tired. And we know that that's true. You know, think of that story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18, great victory. What happens in chapter 19? Jezebel says, if I ever get a hold of this guy, I'm gonna kill him. And, you know, Elijah's running for his life in chapter 19, and he's battling depression. So there's the enemy counterattacking. And then I see, you know, Jesus himself, he's under pressure. The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he's fasting and praying for 40 days and the Bible says he's tempted by the devil. Testings are coming his way. And this is what we read. After he wins the battles, this is what the scriptures teach us in Luke chapter four. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You know what that says to me? Yeah, Satan got defeated that round, but he's not totally out of it yet. He's going to come back at another time when it's more opportune to defeat Jesus. And I'm going to just say this to all of us, that you and I can win victories and think, wow, I've got power now. That's great. 
But just be careful because you know there's going to be another round of battle and difficulty and challenge that will come into your life. And that happens. And it happened to Jesus. So why shouldn't we expect it to happen to us? Well, not only is there pressure from within the church, but uh, there's also pressure from outside, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let me just move on. Well, let's say this. Anyone going any place with God will come to some very challenging and difficult places on their journey. That's true. Where did God lead them? Into the wilderness. Were there challenges in the wilderness? Big time challenges. By the way, if there's no challenge in your life, you're not going to develop. You're going to be weak. You're, gonna, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna be strong spiritually. It, it takes challenge, you know, to build muscle, spiritual muscle. You know, it takes pressure. You know, weightlifting, isn't that what it's all about? Pressure against you. Why? To build muscle. God allows the tests in our lives not only to reveal to ourselves what's there, but also to develop and build spiritual muscle that we learn how to overcome difficult situations in our life. That's the development of character in our lives, and we need to know that. It's ama- isn't it amazing that as soon as there's a problem that we question, first of all, if God brought us there, and secondly, where is God in the problem? Now, let me point out to you what was happening in the wilderness. God was leading them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. It wasn't Moses that brought him into the wilderness. It was God, and it was God that was leading him every step of the way. But you know that God is not someone that is seen, so who do we have to blame? Someone we can see. So leaders always get this criticism, like, you brought us here. And Moses goes, uh, no, I didn't. But he does, you know, no one's listening to him. So the leader has to go to God to get encouragement. So they were blaming Moses for bringing him to the state of affairs. Uh, you, you, you kind of look at Moses and say, you know, Moses, you're kind of wimpy, right? Can't you handle this kind of criticism? Well, Moses said, yeah, but they're pretty upset. You know, they're about ready to kill me. The real issue, though, in this, in this story is found in verse 7. Because the question that they're asking is this, is God among us or not? Isn't it amazing? Uh, Well, as I said, as soon as we have these problems, we question, where is God in our problem? Isn't that the truth? Because you know what we kind of summarize? If we have a problem, number one, this is kind of how we think. God doesn't love me. Why would God let this happen to me? See, why are we asking that question? Wrong question. You gotta get the right questions, folks. Get out of the question, why is this happening to me? Don't go there. You know, well, if God really loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. See, who's that voice? Enemy. God goes, no, I know exactly what I'm doing in your life. I know exactly, you say, well, pastor, tell me, why does God let trouble come my way? Can I just say it to you this way? God is gonna mix a whole bunch of ingredients in your life to make you become like him. How many have ever made a cake? You ever baked a cake? Come on, guys. How many, how many actually have made a cake from scratch? Raise your hand, from scratch. Good, I have my hand up. How many know there's a different amount of ingredients when you bake a cake from scratch? How many would probably say to me, Pastor, I don't want to eat any of those ingredients separately? 
I got my hand up. Right? Baking powder. How many are like, oh, baking. I love baking powder. <laughs> of course not. Raw egg. Flour. Sure, you'd just eat that, right? Come on now. Sugar. Just straight sugar. <laughs> Some of you'd eat that. I got to have it disguised in candy form, right? Right, right. But just, you know, like, I mean, the, the granulated sugar. You're just going to, you know, sit down there, pour a bunch of sugar in, take a spoon and just start eating it. Is that, oh, too much for me. You're too sweet for me. But, you know, seriously, you put all those ingredients together and you put it in the oven and out it comes and you go, wow. You know, if you put a little cocoa, chocolate cake. We just made chocolate cake this morning. How many say, I love it. Looks, oh, it's so good. But the ingredients separately don't go that well. And we need to believe as Christians that God is working all things together for good to those that love him. He is restoring us into the divine image. You and I were created in the image of God. Sin mars it. God is restoring that image. We're becoming like Christ, which means we're becoming Godlike. That's an amazing thing. And the second reason why we need to pray for leaders is that they can't win the battle alone. They can't do this by themselves. They need other people. No man's an island. We're on a team. Look at verse 17, verse 9. Now the pressure's coming from outside. The Amalekites have risen up against the Israelites. And in verse 9 it says, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Wow, not only did he ask Joshua for assistance, but you know what? He does something very interesting. Uh, he, he says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go directly into the fight. A lot of people, I could just see it now. Moses is shirking his responsibility as a leader, right? Don't you think there'd be critics there? How come he's not leading the battle? Moses goes, no, I'm going to go to the top of the hill. Any battle worth fighting for requires more resources than a leader possesses by himself. It's true. So Moses takes, you know, Aaron and her up the hill. And he sends you know, Joshua and a bunch of men down to fight. And we're going to find out something very interesting that happens in this engagement. But let me just regress here for a moment and say this. The measure of our church family is not just the leadership, but the faithful ministry of every member. We saw that this morning, right? The key to continued effective ministry is really a statement and a credit um, to the faithful, effective labors of many, many people behind the scenes, people that are fighting in the trenches, people that are praying, people that are serving, people that are giving, people that are serving with young people, with children, nursery, greeting, ushering, praying, giving, you know, meeting people, helping out in hospitality, serving on a worship team, serving as Stephen's ministers, vocalists, instrumentalists, um, technicians, kitchen ministry, Stephen's ministry, discipleship ministry, men ministry, women's ministry. I can go on and on and on. All these things that are going on, right? How many see that's what all of these components? As a matter of fact, in Nehemiah chapter 3, which is one of the books I love, Everybody's working on the wall except for, except for a handful of people. You know, you can't get everybody doing the right thing. But they're involved in the work. It's a great work. 
We're involved in a great challenge and a great task. But there's probably none more important than the ministry of prayer. And I'll tell you why. Because you and I can do a lot of things organizationally. But if we don't have God in the equation, if we don't have the power of God, if we don't have the supernatural work of God, you know what, people don't get saved. God, you know, it's not just persuading people. This is not what it's about. It's the work of God's spirit that convicts people of their sinfulness, that makes them realize they have a need for a savior, that brings us to a place of humility before God who gives a power and a transforming power to desire what's right and pleasing in God's sight and not that we're just gonna go do our own thing. How many think that you can't do that and I can't do that? And I don't care how organized you are. Do you know, if you take God out of the equation, we're just a social club. That's all we are. But I want you to know a church is totally different. There's a supernatural, spiritual component to it. And the author of it is God himself. And listen, folks, we have the power of the living God leading and directing us to impact our community. That's very powerful, isn't it? I think it is. Now, so I don't think there's anything more important than to solicit God's help in this equation. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us to pray singularly in our prayer closets, but he also taught us to pray corporately together. Did you know that? The early church actually prayed together. And so there's praying individually and there's praying together. And there's people that are praying for their leaders in their private time, and then there's people praying for their leaders collectively. And I'm so thankful for what God has done in our church that people actually learn how to pray together. But let me move on to the third reason why we need to pray for leaders is that they affect the lives of other people more dramatically. And the reason being is they're more visible. Notice Moses, he didn't go down to a little cave, hid himself with Aaron and her, and they were praying. No, they went on top the hill where everybody could see them. And then Moses did something very interesting here. Look at verse 9. So, so, oh, sorry, verse 11. Verse 10, sorry. I'll get there. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Verse 11. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. That's very interesting. How many think that's kind of fascinating? What does this mean? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2.8. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Where do you think Paul came up with this? From this story. So the picture of prayer is, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. This is very powerful. Okay, why does he say that? Because prayer isn't about us getting our will done. See, I think that's what a lot of people think prayer is. I have an agenda, I go to God, I tell God what I want done. Then I'm frustrated when God doesn't answer my prayer. That's not real praying. You got to think of it. You have to read a lot of scriptures to really understand prayer. Here's what he's saying here. When you and I pray, and we pray like the Lord taught us, 
Thy will be done. Okay? Think about this now. When, when a person is a humble person, somebody asked me, what is humility, pastor? It means dependency on God. And dependency on God means this. It's not about what I want, it's about what God wants. And the moment you shift to this position in your life, this is so powerful, you don't have to have your way. The moment you get to that place where you say, God, I'm not interested in my will anymore. I'm not interested in my agenda anymore. I'm interested in your will being done. I'm interested in your kingdom coming. I'm interested in your agenda being advanced. That's all I care about. However you want to do it, I'm fine with it. You don't have to be angry anymore, and you don't have to be fighting with people, disputing anymore. You don't have to manipulate anymore. You can actually relax and say, okay, God, however you want to accomplish it, that's fine with me. You know how much peace, more peaceful your life would be? How many think this is a better way to live? I'm painting a picture now. You know how many marriage problems would disappear if we just practiced praying the right way? Yeah. Just think about what I'm saying. It's no longer what I want, God. It's what you really want. As a matter of fact, I'm so convinced that God is so smart and he knows so much more than I do and he knows what's actually best for me and he knows what's actually best for you that why don't I just say, God, why don't you just do what's best for you and what will be ultimately best for me and best for everybody else? Why don't we just do your thing instead of mine? What a great thought. <laughs> this is how Moses is praying. He's got his hands up. When he had his hands up, which represents prayer, they were winning. When he had his hands down, what was happening? They were losing. Can I just say this, that people only do what they see? How many think that's true? You know, children are only going to do what they see their parents do. Now, you can tell them, but they'll do what, you, what they see. That's more powerful. What am I trying to tell you today? I'm trying to tell you this. You and I need to learn how to pray. You and I need to learn how to pray for the right things. You and I need to learn how to pray for those people that we know are at the front end of the assault. We need to pray especially for them. Because we know if Satan gets his way, he's going to take out the leader. And what's going to happen to the people? They're not going to recover. They're not going to know what to do. They're going to, there's going to be a loss of leadership. So we can't afford that. We've got to pray for those that are leaders. You know, isn't it beautiful when a little child is there at the bedside with mom and dad and they're three years old or four years old or five years old and they start praying, Lord, bless my mommy and my daddy and my grandpa and my grandma and our hearts are melting, right? Come on now. And you know what God goes, I'm not gonna answer that prayer. Of course he's gonna answer that prayer. That's an important prayer. As a matter of fact, that's actually what I'm talking about. I think it's not only important that moms and dads pray for their kids, but I think it's important that the kids pray for their moms and dads. How many are seeing it? It's not only important that I pray and the staff prays and the leaders in the church pray for you, but that you pray for us. How many are beginning to see it's a mutuality that's important that we're doing this thing together? Wow. Let me move on to the fourth point. It goes simply at this. The final reason why leaders need prayer is that they're human. How many know that leaders are human beings? What happened after a while is Moses had his hands up, but what happens when you lift your hands after a while? How long can you do this? Well, some can do it longer than others, but I tell you, if you do this for an hour, either your hands are locked in place or they're dropping. It's a lot easier to have them down here than it is up there, right? It's hard to pray. It's hard work. It's easier not to pray. Isn't that true? Come on now. 
We're distracted by a lot of other things. Prayer is actually hard work. That's why we don't pray, folks. Our hands are up. We're praying. But Aaron and her finally realized something. They, they were watching. They noticed every time Moses' hands were up, they were winning. And every time they dropped down, they were losing. They said, you know, we got to win. And we're only going to win if Moses' hands are up. So what did they do? It says here, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. There was a relationship between what was happening in the natural and what was happening in the spiritual. And when the battle is won in the spiritual, then the battle is won in the natural. And if the battle is lost, in the spiritual then the battle is lost in the natural and these guys figured it out and so they came alongside of Moses they held his hands up is that powerful and because his hands were up who won everybody everybody was the winner I'm going to say this to you if you don't pray for your leaders you're going to lose not just the leader you're going to lose It's self-interest to pray for the leader. It's self-interest to pray for the prime minister. It's a self-interest to pray for the mayor and the premier and the pastor because it affects us collectively. I'm gonna close with the story. You know, I am so thankful for the people that have prayed with me. Years ago, I came across this amazing story. Dr. Wilbur Chapman, probably in the early 1900s, He went to this very large church in Philadelphia. He was a very young pastor. Very young. First day, first sermon. He comes and he gets done. And this old gentleman walks up to him and he says, you know, you're pretty young to be the pastor of this great church. We've always had older pastors and I'm afraid that you're not going to succeed. But if you'll just preach the gospel, I'm going to help you all I can. Wilbur Chapman looked at this guy and he said to himself, he's just an old crank. You know, he just thought, He's just a, you know, who cares what he thinks? But this old guy said something to him, got his attention. He said, listen, I'm going to pray for you that you have the Holy Spirit's power on you. And I've talked to two of my friends, and we're going to agree in prayer that when you speak, God's going to do powerful things through you. And Wilbur Chapman related the outcome. He said, soon it went from three men praying for him to ten men, and from ten men to twenty men. And eventually, the 20 became 50 men praying for their pastor. And eventually, it became 219 men praying for their pastor every Sunday. How many want to hear what the result was? 219 men praying that God would anoint their pastor to minister the word of God in that church. In three years, 1,100 people gave their lives to Christ. 600 of them were men. You know what, Chapman? He says this at the end. I love this. He says, I do not see how the average pastor under average circumstances can preach at all. See, what you guys don't understand, because most of you have never done this, is this is a battle every single week. This is intense. You think, well, I just get up and talk. No, it's not that at all. It starts during the week. It starts in preparation. It's a spiritual warfare. There's an enemy. He wants to, you know, take me out, destroy, minimize, whatever. But I know for over 20 years, I've met with men who have prayed with me every single Sunday 
for me and for the church. Interesting, isn't it? What am I saying to you? We are in a major spiritual battle. I'm going to shock you right now. We are living in a very intense time in our world's history. I was just in Israel. Anti-Semitism is rising at a, hot, a whole new level. Do you guys know that? I was standing over the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, where the final conflict, the final battle in human history is going to happen. I'm looking at this place with our group, and I said, listen, this is where the final battle is going to happen. We were standing on the Mount of Olives, and I said, you know where we're standing right now is the first place that Jesus is going to come back to earth. Because it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, in the same way that he was taken up for you, he's going to come back to this very place. I said to our group, wouldn't it have been awesome if Jesus had come back right now? We're the first ones to greet him. We're standing at that place. Why, Why am I saying these things? Because if you and I are sleeping like the disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're toast. We're toast. We're going to get wiped out. We're going to be failures. We're going to be ashamed of ourselves when the hour of testing comes. You know, if you're, you know people think you pray after the problems. Listen, you and I need to learn how to pray before the problems come. So that when the problems come, you know how to pray. And you don't respond in the wrong way. You are ready for it. You are ready to handle what's coming your way. Because you've been praying. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. I am believing that God will do in 2015 what I've never seen him do before. This is my prayer. God, would you bring as many people to Christ in this year of my life than I've seen in all the other years put together? That's what I'm praying for. You know, God's answering that. I'm seeing more people come to Christ quicker all the time. But I know that when you start to see that stuff happening, you know the battle is intensifying. And that's exactly what's going to happen. We better be praying. We better be praying, folks. And with every head bowed right now, maybe you're here today and say, Pastor, I don't know Christ. But I realize I'm trapped in sin, and I want to be free. And if that's you here today, just raise your hand and say, you know what? I want to be, I want to, I want to meet the Savior that'll deliver me from my sin. If that's you, just raise your hand. God bless you. Yes. God bless you. Yes. Okay. God bless you. God bless you. People all over the auditorium responding this morning. Let me ask a different question. I want you guys that have raised your hand. I'm going to pray for you right now. Afterwards, I, we have a guest reception area. I want you to go there and say, listen, I made a commitment to Jesus today. I want to be free. I'm going to have people contact you. I want to help you. We're not going to run your life. Don't, we don't do that here. But you, you're going to find out you cannot do this alone. You're going to need assistance. That's what the church is here for, to help each other. If you will do that, we will help you. If you don't do that, we cannot help you. Okay, it's real simple. How many here say, Pastor, I'm speaking to Christians now. 
I am going to be more vigilant in praying for you as my leader. I'm going to pray more for our pastoral staff than I ever have before. I'm beginning to realize I need to do this. This is so critical. God spoke to me today and said, you know what? I want you to pray for your pastor. God was speaking to you today as I was preaching. Yeah, I appreciate that. God's going to honor your prayers. Thank you so much for doing that. You have no idea. What's going to happen is our church is going to go to a whole new level. If, you, if you're faithful to do that, God will bless in a very powerful way. I guarantee you. I'm praying for you. I'm asking you to pray for me. Because I want, to, I want to have a greater impact in our city. I only have so many years left. And I know it. It's, and it's not a, a long time. But I, I'm saying to myself, I have at least, you know, this last, de- this last decade of my ministry in, as a pastor. At least. I want it to be the most effective decade of my entire ministry. I need you to join with me, and we're going to see what God does. Okay? If you'll do that, you will see powerful things. I guarantee you're going to see powerful stuff. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be high-fiving. We're on the same team. We're going to be cheering. God's going to be going, you guys did a great job. I'm so proud of you guys. By the way, I am proud of our church. You have no idea how proud I am of you. But I think we can go to another level, okay? We can go to a whole new level, and we're going to get there. But it's going to require us praying like we've never prayed before. All right? Father, thank you this morning. There are people here that said, I want to know Jesus. I pray, hear the cry of their heart. Even as they cry out to you now, hear that cry and set them free. Help them to experience the freedom and the peace and the joy of knowing you. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that we will take this seriously. We are in a major spiritual battle, and the thief, which is a description of Satan, has his, his purpose statement for our lives is to steal, kill, and to destroy us. He's got one agenda, to destroy us. But that you have come to give us life, and that more abundantly. Lord, I pray that we will connect with you at a level we never have before, that this year we will learn to pray like we've never prayed before, and that we will see victory upon victory upon victory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.